Hey, it's Otis here. Before we get to the bedtime reading, I wanted to let you know that I just launched a brand new show. It's called The Daily Book Club, a daytime companion to Sleepy, where you hear entire books one chapter at a time, one day at a time. Simple as that. So if Sleepy is how you uh, wind down your day, The Daily Book Club is a great way to start your day. There's new episodes daily. Uh, I read in a slightly peppier voice so that you can get really lost in these amazing stories that have stood the test of time. Or, just like Sleepy, you can sit back and relax and zone out to a good book. The first book we'll be reading is The Enchanted April by Elizabeth Von Arnhem. Story is, in the 1920s, four women unfulfilled with life take a chance and abscond to a dreamy medieval Italian castle. It's a story dripping with wisteria, the beauty of solitude, and an unlikely pursuit of joy in Portofino, Italy. I think that this is a perfect story for the season, and you can hear it now. Find The Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. This show has been a long time coming, and I'm so excited to bring you even more stories. So go subscribe to The Daily Book Club to hear what happens next. Thanks. This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well, and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high-quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones, they have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included. And there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a 
wonderful, snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. Tis Jordan, Allie, Toral, and Maitri Pushpa. Thank you so, so much for donating and being a part of making this show. It means so much. And for those of you who don't know, these are new patrons uh, of the Sleepy Podcast, which means that they donate a dollar, two dollars, sometimes five dollars a month to the show. Uh, and at five dollars a month, you get access to a special Patreon poetry feed where I send you poetry readings twice a month just for donating. So if you'd like your name read in the opening credits of the show and the show works for you and you want to give back even a little bit, then you go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. That's patreon.com slash sleepy radio. But tonight I want to do something a little different. If the show helps you, I would really appreciate if you, instead of donating to the sleepy podcast on patreon.com, you go and you donate to rainforesttrust.org. I'm sure many of you have now heard about uh, the fires that are kind of tearing through the Amazon. And while fires happen a lot in, in the Amazon, this year they are completely out of proportion. And right now, um, a substantial amount of rainforest is being lost. And while the saying the Amazon is the lungs of the world. It's kind of a cliche. It's very true. Um, and the Amazon produces about 20% of the world's oxygen. And it also plays a huge part in regulating the Earth's temperature all around. So the forest burning you know, in South America, thousands of miles away, it does affect you. And not only that, it's, it's an astoundingly beautiful thing that's being lost at the hands of man. Because a lot of these fires are being started by farmers who are clearing land. Um, and one of the big things they're doing is raising cattle because the uh, demand for beef around the world is so, so high, among other things. But the fires are not completely natural. They're, they're very much created by us. And we've definitely tipped the scales. And the forest is burning way, way too much and way too unnaturally for it to be sustainable in the long run. So rainforesttrust.org, which I'll have a link to in all of Sleepy's social media, which on Twitter is Sleepy Podcast and on Instagram is Sleepy underscore podcast. It's a really, really cool organization that when you donate, you're actually helping to buy acres of land in the rainforest to be protected by this trust. So you can very tangibly see that your money is directly correlated to buying acres of land, which I think is a really uh, creative way to protect uh, places like the rainforest because they've saved about 23 million acres of land over the last three decades that they've been, that they've been running. And wherever they buy land, they work with the local communities to make sure that the land is used sustainably um, it's protected from things like these crazy crazy fires that have gotten out of hand and they also go out of their way to make sure that the wildlife on these lands are protected uh, so it's a really great organization and if you see 
pictures of the forest burning and you just don't know what to do, this is a really tangible way to use your money. And I'd ask that anyone who would like to donate to the Sleepy Podcast, even if it's like a dollar or two dollars a month, go to rainforesttrust.org and and just donate it there for me. (laughs) Uh, Because they're going to buy land with your money. And while it feels like you can just be totally helpless thousands of miles away, it's a really good way to help with money. It's tangible. It's real. It can make a difference. And other than that, just raise awareness. Just be vocal about this happening because I just feel like this will be an easy thing to kind of slip away in the news cycle, which is sad because the fires don't stop once we stop talking about them. So, again, rainforesttrust.org. Really, really cool organization. Just go and donate even a little bit on behalf of the Sleepy Podcast. Uh, and help to buy land so that it can be protected. And in respect, great respect, of the Amazon jungle, um, tonight I'm going to do something a little different. I'm actually not reading a book. I am going to tell you a story. It's kind of a long, meandering, tangential story, but it's a little bit about my time in the Amazon jungle and how much it changed me and gave me a much greater appreciation and respect for Earth. And I do not mean that in a hippy-dippy respect way. I mean respect as in this thing that is just so much greater than us and so much more vibrant and alive and majestic than anything we could imagine. It exists on Earth, and it is all-powerful, and it is the Amazon jungle. And my whole life was kind of leading up to going to the jungle back in 2014, and when I did, it, it really, really had an impact on me. So tonight, um, you can doze off, and I'm just going to kind of yap a little bit and tell you a little bit about me and my, uh, my time chugging down the Amazon River on a boat for five days. So, if you'd like to go to sleep to this, now is the time for you to get real comfortable and fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Close your eyes and let me tell you a story. In 2014, I went to Peru for five months. I was supposed to only be there for two and a half to three months, but (laughs) it got extended. And my girlfriend at the time was not so happy about it. But about two or three months in, I made my way up to the jungle, up to Pucallpa, which is in the very southernmost part of the Peruvian jungle. And it's kind of one of the stopping posts before you go north or east deep into the heart of the Amazon. And this is something I wanted to do ever since I was a kid. I remember in third grade, I think it was third grade, 
my entire class, which was 12 kids, um, Vermont, that's how big classes are, uh, we all got a project to look at an indigenous tribe, and mine was the Inca. And I remember being entirely fascinated with the Inca and how much land they covered at the height of their power. And um, it was the first time I had really looked into the jungle and all the amazing creatures in it. And that, as a kid growing up in Vermont, was absolutely fascinating. And to be quite honest, it never went away. And I knew as I went through high school, I would one day go to the jungle. I knew as I went through college, I would one day go to the jungle. I even wrote a Fulbright scholarship to try to go to Peru um, with the sculptures that I was making in school. Um, I didn't get it, <laughs> but I did sell a sculpture shortly after, and I said, I am going to just do it. So I bought a one-way ticket to Peru uh, right after I graduated. Remember, it was on July 4th, 2014. So a few months in, when my whole life kind of felt like it was leading up to this moment of being in the most uncomfortable place that I could possibly put myself. I, I remember I was south of Pucallpa, and I took this bus. It was a 22-hour bus ride. Uh, these buses called chicken buses. It's because sometimes there are literally chickens that are on the bus with you. It's not very comfortable, but um, that's all I could afford at the time. And I remember just passing out, I think, on a guy's shoulder beside me. Um, and when I woke up, I was in a different universe. I was plunging down this mountain. It was a, it was just kind of just like winding. Uh, like a falling leaf road and every turn we took and went deeper and deeper down I feel like the trees changed and the leaves changed everything just got more surreal and different and I'd seen leaves that I'd never thought I'd ever see I know that's a weird thing to say but leaves in the Amazon are their own kind of beast. They're the size of your body, and I just never seen anything like that in person. And I got into Bukalpa, and it's this little hot, humid city where you can get boats and buses all around. It's a, it's a really crazy little place. And everyone drives tuk-tuks, uh, like open-air motorcycle taxis because it's so hot. No one drives a car. And I stayed there for a few nights before taking a boat up the Amazon. Uh, I was headed to Iquitos. And Iquitos is this jungle city way, way north in the Amazon. It's a wild, wild place. Um, it's where uh, Fitzcarraldo was filmed, right around that area in the jungle. That's kind of what it's known for famously, but you can only get to Iquitos by boat or by plane because it is way out there and I did not have money to get on a plane. So obviously I decided I was going to take a boat 
Now to take a boat from Pacalpa to Iquitos is a five-day journey. And the boats that you take are shipping freighters. And, and I mean shipping freighters. These are big, big boats that are um, shipping metals and wood. And I think on the boat I got on, they, they were transporting a bunch of motorcycles up the river. And what you do is you uh, pay the captain a little bit of money and you bring a hammock onto the boat and you hang it wherever you can. So I bought a hammock for maybe $5. Uh, they tried to overprice me or gringo price me. I bought the ticket, haggled with them. I told them I knew the price and uh, I think they respected that. And they gave me a decent price. But I got on this boat, which left a full 24 hours late. Uh, we were just sitting in harbor, just sweating on this boat. And I was one of about 400 people on this boat. Only white guy. Uh, and it was such an amazing sight. Everyone just hangs a hammock wherever you possibly can, like hanging it from from pipes that are on the boat. This is like a two or three story open aired barge and you just hang your hammock wherever you can. So if you were to walk through, it was like this, like old school metal boat and everyone just kind of hanging like bats from these colorful hammocks. It was absolutely fascinating. And, uh, Every boat had a couple cooks on it. What you did was you brought Tupperware. And um, three times a day, there would be a bell that rings. Like 6 a.m., 11 a.m., and then 5 p.m. And you go down to the kitchen. And you get in a long, 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 long line. Everyone on the boat gets in a line. You walk up with your Tupperware. And they fill it with, with usually rice, beans. Um, sometimes fish, uh, but usually like uh, chicken, and they just fill up your Tupperware, and you you go back to your to your hammock. <laughs> so the boat eventually left the harbor, and it was five days chugging up the Amazon. I would say probably at ten miles per hour, um, and the boat would kind of run off onto the side of the river. They would intentionally steer and just crash into the to the side of the banks um, to drop people off in these little villages that are all kind of strewn about throughout the Amazon. So people would get off. Um, it's kind of like just taking a subway where, oh, this is my stop, except it's 40 miles up the Amazon. Um, so people would get off. And then locals would run on and sell whatever they wanted to sell. So little treats and um, really, really wonderful like roasted fish or roasted potatoes or um, tamales. I, oh man, I got very addicted to Amazonian tamales. I don't know why, but they hide a raisin in the middle of these tamales. I always loved that. And sometimes you just get random stuff like a little piece of chicken <laughs> or raisin. It was always a surprise. 
Well, anyways, people would come on the boat and sell newspapers and everyone bought a newspaper because when you're on a boat going up the Amazon, the boat running 24 hours a day, there's not much to do. So if there's anything you can read, you take it. So everyone got the newspaper. So every time we would kind of crash into the side of the banks and pull away, when we got on the river again, was everyone in their hammocks with paper. Everyone's face was kind of covered. I remember that very vividly. It was really wonderful. But chugging down the river is... It was... I finally felt like I had made it. You know, this dream that I had since I was in third grade of being out being in the jungle, being in a completely uncomfortable universe, a different planet, just wanting to be somewhere that I felt I'd never go unless I just leaned a little bit and fell off that ledge. That's when I finally felt I had done it. I think it was the first sunset that I saw in the Amazon. The thing about the Amazon is so this boat was three stories high, so you could go right to the top, and I would climb these shipping canisters to get as high up as I could. The thing about the Amazon is it's it's flat if you look over it. I mean, there's it's just trees, but it looks like a giant plane that goes for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles, just skimming over the tops of these trees. It goes forever. If you look and kind of like do a spin, 360 angle, it's just a flat top of the tree line for as long and as far as you can see. And at sunset, you watch it dip over the tree line. I remember the first night, we must have been heading um, west because the sun set right in front of us. Right in front of us. And it became this unbelievable pink and then a rose gold. And the way that rose gold looks with the deep dark green of the rainforest and the dark murky brown of the river is a color combination that you just can't make up. It's astounding. And then it goes from rose gold to a deep, dark blood red. And the sun looked like it was just cut right in half, right through the middle by the tree line. And it was blood red. I mean, blood red. It was... Hmm... And there's no pollution out there. Not really. Not if you're really deep in the Amazon. So you know. That whatever you're seeing. Is an unadulterated view. Of the world. Something that cannot be tamed. It's like if I pretended that I wasn't on a boat. On top of a shipping canister. Looking at the sunset. 
I was looking at something that looked the same 6,000 years ago. And that takes you to such a unbelievable and primal place where you feel deeply connected but also that nothing you know matters and I don't mean that in a existential way necessarily definitely not a negative way but I mean it puts everything in perspective seeing something that great and that wild and that untamable it makes you realize how little your worries matter truly but in the same breath how little the things you like matter it's just it's just there is no right or wrong in a place like that in a world like that it's just it just is and that's what it felt like in the jungle there was the rule of the jungle and there was nothing else and there was a real real sense of vitality knowing that if I was off this boat if I was in the water or if I had to spend a day in the jungle man I would hope that I would last <laughs> more than an hour but it was liberating knowing how much more powerful this jungle is than I am how meaningless I am in the scheme of it I know some people that might be overwhelming and scary but I loved it it was so inspiring it was the full it's, a, it's the deepest most humbling feeling knowing that nature does not care you respect it it does not need to respect you. <laughs> not through fear, but through awe. The awe of how powerful something like the Amazon rainforest is. is so mighty and intangible that you have to respect it. I know there is a fine line between respect and fear. I would say that I respected it from the safety of the boat. But if, if I was in it, I would fear it deeply. There's no place like it. So we chug up the Amazon. And I had my sketchbooks and I had a couple books. I was actually, I had um, the Motorcycle Diaries by... Um, Ernesto Guevara, Che Guevara, his actual diaries, not, you know, um, and it was written all in Spanish, and I was working on translating it, because my Spanish was pretty good, but it wasn't mm, great, I could definitely get by pretty well, but it's something I always wanted to read as well, so I had this book, and then I had my sketchbooks, because I was drawing all the time, I was writing all the time, I was taping little mementos into the book and if there was a really beautiful flower or leaf I would kind of preserve it in a little like masking tape 
I would stick it to the masking tape and then fold the back over it. So it was like my way of making these little, little like flower and leaf trading cards. It was pretty cool. But I was drawing everything and everyone. And when you're drawing, these 400 people on the boat, these are families mostly. It's almost all families, so there are tons and tons and tons of kids. Uh, babies, like newborn babies and the kids growing right up into teenagers and then into adults. So I'm in my hammock, the only white guy, which no one cares about. Peruvians are so polite and great and honestly I must not have been that interesting at all, which I very much appreciate it. But when I pulled out my pencils and my watercolors and I started drawing the river and drawing other people in their hammocks uh, during the long days, it attracted attention of a lot of kids. Um, so they would come over and they would kind of peep into my hammock. They would get on their little tiptoes and, and look at the hammock at what I was drawing. And, you know, I had this guy that was in a hammock next to me, and he had this giant parrot. It was a really big bird. It was green and yellow. I think he named him, oh, it started with a B. Mm, he had a really great name. I remember I got a, a feather from him, from the bird. I put that in my sketchbook. I sent it home to my girlfriend at the time. But I'd be drawing this bird, and these kids were absolutely fascinated. Um, and I went to art school, so it was one of the few things that I actually did pretty well. And these kids were, were absolutely astounded. And they all wanted to grab my book and my pencils and draw, and I let them. I still have so many amazing drawings from these kids. Um, they would steal my glasses whenever I wasn't wearing my contacts. They would steal my glasses and run around the boat and and draw just ridiculous stuff. And they would draw each other. Around the second or third day, um, one of the kids was a little bit older. Uh, this amazing little girl. Her name was Yoras. She was astounding. She was 11, I believe. She very politely asked if I could teach her how to draw well, by looking at someone. And that turned into me gathering a bunch of kids and, and teaching them about the dimensions of the head. So if you make a circle and you make a line right down the middle, um, that's generally where the eyes are. And then halfway between that line and the bottom, so the bottom of the nose is, two-thirds between that line and the bottom are the lips. Um, just little dimensional things. I would, there's a way to draw a head in, in kind of like a square box. I was teaching them this and it blew their mind. <laughs> and from then on they were, some of them didn't care to draw the boxes, they just wanted to keep drawing, uh, you know, random stuff and crayons and but some a lot of kids were just making square boxes trying to figure out what I just showed them 
and trying to draw each other. And that was fascinating. And Yoris, man, she was really good. She was very, very good at it. Um, she would drew a bunch of characters in my book, and there was there's a man smoking a pipe with a hat, and there was a woman in a dress, and I asked her who the man smoking the pipe was, and she said, me. And I was like, what? And she was explaining that she lived in a village way, way deep into the jungle. We were still two days away from where she was. And she loved to act, and there was a, her school was doing a little play, and uh, she was the lead. And the lead was, I guess, a grumpy guy who smoked a pipe. He was the main character, and she was playing him. Uh, she was, she's one of those like old soul kind of people, you know. Because I remember one day. This was actually a big moment for me. It was probably the third day. And Yoris and I were hanging out a lot because she loved to draw. And, and she was teaching me some Spanish. And she was just awesome. <laughs> and uh, the boat rammed off into the side of the river. And people came on and they were selling their newspapers which I think were a day old at that point because newspapers did not get out that far. So whatever news we were reading was minimum a day or two old. Everyone bought their papers. And we got back on the river. And we're chugging down the Amazon and the bell rings for lunch. And I wandered down with my Tupperware. And, and everyone had seen me at that point, only white guy in the boat and no one really cared, everyone was nice, but now it felt like people were looking at me, strangely, and I was, I kind of caught a strange feeling kind of going down that day, and I was uncomfortable, and I got my food, and I was walking back, and people would look at me above their papers from their hammocks, and they would shake their heads like in disappointment. I was so confused. And it took by the time I got back up to the third floor of the barge, to my hammock, looking around. And on the paper, on the newspaper, was just a picture of an American soldier and a city burning behind it. And it was when... It said U.S. strikes, in Spanish it said U.S. strikes Syria with Tomahawk missiles. So, and this was in 2014, probably around August or October. And that is how I learned that we, as a country, were bombing um, Syria. But, but I became the face of that. Everyone was really disappointed in me for that because I was representing America on that boat, which was so strange. A lot of times I would just say I was Canadian whenever I was abroad because it made it easier. Everyone likes Canada. But it was really hard um, because people stopped talking to me 
not everyone, but some people just didn't really have an interest in talking to me anymore after reading the story. And uh, I was kind of bummed. Not only thinking about, you know, this country that I left behind, but it's very much still a part of me. Like, you can, all I ever want to do is get out and go. But you take things with you. You really do. Some things you can't leave behind, and one of them is where you're from. And where I was from was the reason that people did not want to talk to me anymore. And I remember Yoris coming up to me, and she said she asked if I was sad. I was like, "No, no, I'm not sad. I'm, you know, I'm just tired." She's like, "It's okay to be sad." <laughs> I said, "Thank you, Yoris." She's like, "Are you sad because of the paper?" I said, "Yeah, a little bit." Um, and. I think she asked me, I asked why, I asked her, why do people not like Americans? Which is a crazy thing to ask an 11-year-old girl from the Amazon. Like, I know that. But I asked her, why, why do people not like Americans here? And she said, I might mess this up. She said, Porque todo es sobre dueños. Porque todo es sobre dueños. Which I'm pretty sure it means because everything is about ownership. Whatever she said, I remember that was the translation. And for an 11 year old girl to say that that people don't love Americans because everything is about ownership. That made sense. Like apart from our politics and anything, the attitude that we bring, everything about ownership, that really stuck with me. And now I think about What's happening in the Amazon has something to do with it. You know, a lot of the land that's being cleared is to make room for cattle. Because the global demand for beef is astronomical. So, I mean, hopefully you're not still awake listening to this. But if you are, maybe consider eating a little less beef. Um, I mean, if you get your beef locally, you know where it's coming from. It's not a problem. Being a very passionate eater, I would never tell anyone what to eat or what not to eat. But just know that if you buy beef in the grocery store and you don't know exactly where it's coming from, it could very well be coming from South America on from land that is being cleared in the Amazon by fire uh, to raise these cattle. So maybe consider eating a little less beef. I'll tell you, I am a big fan of eggplant. And you can cook eggplant if you cook it the right way. You can trick people into thinking that they're eating steak. It's wild. I even really tried it to make uh, burgers one day with eggplant. And 
disguise it uh, visually and with marinades uh, and serve it in a burger to my friends who were carnivores, like real dinosaurs. And after I asked how their burger was, they said, oh, so good. I said, ha, huh. it wasn't burger. It was eggplant. And that blew their minds. So, this is a little bit of a tangent. I guess this whole thing is, but another way that you might be able to help is just eating less beef or just being conscious of it and making sure that if you do get it, you know where it's coming from. That's a little thing you can do to help as well. So sorry, back to Yoris. Uh, her saying, her saying that was really sad, but also really humbling and relieving to know. You know, it's like wherever I traveled, Peruvians are so so nice. So whenever I wherever I traveled in Peru, and said I was from, you know, Los Estados Unidos, people were very very. I said, oh, cool. Miami. Do you live in Miami? No. New York? No. <laughs> so those were generally the places that people knew in, in the U.S. Weird that it's Miami. I guess because it's the most southern part of the U.S. that's recognizable. Um, but, um, yeah, it, felt, it just felt like wherever I went, there was a little bit of hesitation to be welcoming, you know, saying you're from the U.S. It's pretty crazy how different of a response you'll get if you say you're from Canada, which I can pull off. If I said I'm from Canada, people are like, oh, we love Canada. Some people didn't even know where Canada was, um, where, I, where I was traveling. They asked if it was in the United States. But when Yor said that while we were chugging down the river, it just, it made me constantly think about the vibe that I put off and when I'm traveling and wondering if I am all about ownership and having things and for myself and it's a really selfish act to be all about ownership and I really don't think I am. I'm constantly uh, cognition of it. I don't think I am. But that wasn't the point. The point is that I was traveling and in a way representing my country, which for better or worse is the United States. And just knowing that when you go somewhere like the Amazon jungle, just because you're out in the untamable unimaginable wild it's just a different planet you still carry with you where you're from and that's something you should just be aware of always so that is something that I am always aware of I'll finish by telling you that five days later on the boat I got off in Iquitos wonderful jungle city and the following three or four weeks that I spent there was life changing 
it had a lawlessness to it. It was this city that was that fell. You could walk around it. It was pretty big. You could walk around the edge of the city. And it really felt like the edges of the city were constantly fighting off the jungle. Like it knew, the city knew that the jungle was so much more powerful than it. And it was a constant battle to keep it from completely overrunning the buildings and the roads that it had built. If you went to the edge of the city, you'd be walking along a path with a beautiful stone wall. Really old structures that were built during the rubber boom in the late 1800s, mid-1800s, when Europeans came over, rich Europeans, and uh, were harvesting rubber and put a lot of money into making this city uh, really kind of hauntingly beautiful uh, with a French aesthetic. And you'd be walking along these walls that are old and French and represented a a time of Europeans being all-powerful, mighty, even undefeatable. And right over the wall, you can see a car disappearing into the ground or an entire steamship that's just been beached for what looks like 40 years. It's just been taken over by vines and trees and undoubtedly animals. And it just felt like if the city stopped moving for one day, if it just stopped fighting, the jungle would swallow it whole. It really felt like that. And it felt like I was safe on that path. And the moment that I stepped off of it into that jungle or wanted to go investigate that steamship, the moment that I step on Amazonian soil, I no longer had the protection of mankind. I was out there, and you go from the top of the food chain to somewhere around the middle to the bottom so quick in the Amazon, it feels like. About a week later, I'd actually swim in the Amazon. I got invited to this little cabin way, way out in the jungle to meet this shaman. It's a long story. <laughs> but I remember this guy, a Peruvian guy, we hit it off and he uh, we rode his motorcycle down to the edge of the river. I was very trusting. Still am. And it was a full moon. And he stood on the bank because he wanted he said, we're going to go meet the shaman. I said, okay, I just have to see where this goes. Even though he definitely could have just, you know, kidnapped me. I don't know. We go down to the edge of the river. He puts two fingers in his mouth, and he whistles really loud. And besides the moonlight, that we are in darkness, standing right on the bank of the Amazon. So he whistled, and about a minute later, a little guy paddles up in a wooden canoe probably early 20s and he tells me to hop in I have to my curiosity wouldn't allow me to do anything else 
And we paddle back from where he came across the river on the Amazon River. Murky, brown, can't see anything. It's midnight. We reach the other bank. And we stumble through the forest. The place where, four days later, right there, a man would get bit by a spider and have to be rushed to the hospital because he was about to die right where I was walking. And we meet the shaman who has this little cabin out in the jungle and he's kind of the unofficial mayor of his village. And without going into too much detail, uh, the next three or four days out there were some of the most inspiring humbling days of my life and every morning myself and a few other people Peruvians would uh, would jump into the Amazon which was such a wild feeling that's when I really felt like I had felt like I would made it before by being on top of that ship and looking out of the Amazon but this felt like a full trust fall into the world going underwater in the Amazon River. And this is the part where it's murky and brown and even if you open your eyes underwater, you can see two inches ahead of you. And I knew the creatures that lived there. And I knew that because the marketplace right off of the river was selling piranhas and giant snake and these just archaic dinosaur fish that you could eat and they were delicious. They were selling everything that you could catch in the Amazon and I knew underwater that I was coexisting with all of that. Piranhas and snakes. Things that survived devastating natural events and just became these strong dinosaur prehistoric things that only exist in the Amazon jungle. I remember just being underwater and closing my eyes and just letting it happen. Just being there. Being totally susceptible and unprotected in a place that I'd never thought I'd go another planet and there was such a terrifying freedom in that like when you first go underwater your heart is racing and you're just wondering what's around you and what you're going to do. But then after 15, 20 seconds, when nothing's happened to you and you just hear the rush of the Amazon River, this majestic thing, the most incredible thing that exists on Earth, and you're in it, kind of hearing its heartbeat, your heart stops racing and calm and you feel free and in a place where 
feels like everything can hurt you. It actually feels like nothing can hurt you. And if it does, that's just what it is. It was a complete surrendering to this place that I was in. Just giving way and allowing myself to feel all of it without letting fear or awe or anything get in the way. Just being underwater, being submerged, being totally dominated and swallowed up for a moment by this thing that's so much greater than I was. The Amazon jungle. I'll never forget that. If there's ever moments that I feel overwhelmed by little things in my day, now, back in the U.S., and, or if I'm in New York City and a little thing is bothering me, I can always go back to the Amazon in my head and submerge myself in that river and realize that whatever it is is not as powerful as what really is out there. That whatever I'm thinking and worrying about is so small in comparison to the absolute power of things that exist on this earth. We are just visitors. Something I heard the other day that really stuck with me it was actually before news of the Amazon became rampant and everywhere. I heard it on a TED radio hour, I believe. It was a conservationist, and um, Guy Raz, the host, was asking the conservationist about, um, you know, it might have been about jungles. Anyways, he said, I'm afraid to ask this, but is it too late? Have we done irreversible damage to the earth? Is there any way of going back? And his answer was more or less. The thing is, the earth, he said we can survive without these things. We can survive without beauty. We can survive without our national parks and geysers and trees that, that boggle the human mind. We can survive without the abundant rainforest and mountains that, that completely mystify us and shorelines that are the thing of dreams. We can, we can do without beauty these things that were contributing to their destruction. Humans will be fine. We'll consolidate. We'll build. We'll become more efficient. We'll make artificial food. We'll have artificial beauty on with whatever technology we have. We can survive without beauty. So, 
He said, don't think that climate change is just going to wipe us out. It's not. We'll survive. When the last of our forests are cut down to make room for more people, we'll be okay as a, as a race. But how horrifying is it to have to survive in a world where there is no beauty? How much of a punishment would it be to live on in this world without everything that makes it majestic? To me, that is so much more horrifying than the end of humanity. It's the continuation of humanity without nature and without the things that make humanity at all worth preserving. So, say the entire Amazon jungle burns down. What an awful thought. But say it does. Humans will live on. As a race, we will technically survive. Probably. But why would you want to? Why would you want to live in a world where something like the Amazon rainforest isn't valued? Why would you want that? So, if this is a good way to think about it, you know, people say that the Amazon jungle is the, the lungs of the earth. And it provides 20% of the oxygen to the world and does all this to regulate climate. And that is directly correlated to your survival and your well-being and the well-being of your children and your children's children and making sure that they survive with the Amazon jungle being part of its machine. If that helps you, think about how imperative it is to know and to act great but for me what helps me is knowing that we'll probably be fine technically but we'll be surviving in a place where there's no rainforest and there's no value put to it the thought of my never experiencing that blood red sunset over the tree line chugging down the Amazon on a boat the sky just washing over with a deep crimson red the thought of never having experienced that is wordlessly sad So, this is the moment where I, in my mind, dip into the Amazon and go underwater and realize how small things in my immediate vicinity are and my worries and my fears and things I love and remember that there's something so much mightier 
and so much greater that has allowed us to become who we are. And that is the Amazon jungle and the greatest mountains in the world and the greatest oceans. These are all ingredients in the blood flowing through your body right now. And they're all ingredients in those moments of wonder you have during the day. Those times when you're fascinated by the world and you see something and wonder, how did that happen? How does that exist? Those moments of wonder are completely made up by great giant entities that are real and that exist on Earth, like the Amazon jungle. So, boy, I hope you're still not awake listening to this. I know this is very different for the sleepy podcast to do, but it's been on my mind a lot. So I figured I'd talk to you about it. So, if you are still awake, go to rainforesttrust.org and donate a little bit because they're going to buy acres of land. They've already saved somewhere over like 23 million acres and they preserve it. They conserve it and they work with locals and indigenous people to use it respectfully. That's all I have for you tonight. Thank you for listening, if you still are listening. Sweet dreams.